What's up, NFL fans? Welcome to another episode of Four Down Territory. I'm your host, Luke Easterling, alongside Doug Farrar. As always, Doug, are we going to talk about officials? Or are we going to we going to we could spend the whole show talking about officiating? Do you want to do that? Oh, there's another blown call right there. Just flew right by me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm I'm really tired of writing about bad officiating. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, fans are, are tired of watching it, uh, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get to it at some point. But, uh, you know, let's start with uh, the fact that coming into Monday night's game, right, Rams-Packers, there there have been 101 games this season decided by a touchdown or less. It's the most in NFL history through the first 15 games of the season. The little things matter more than ever, right? seems like officiating is not only worse than ever, but it's deciding more games than ever, and that's a huge problem, right? We saw this. In the case of the Derek Carter, Keelan Cole touchdown pass that really shouldn't have been, right? And then at the end of uh, the uh, Washington and Giants game, right? You've got the obvious pass interference on Darnay Holmes, on Curtis Samuel. It puts the game away for the Giants over the Commanders. Seems like every week there are multiple officiating blunders that are glaringly obvious, right? That they're affecting the results. Things aren't getting any better. How does the NFL solve this? Is it salvageable at all? Yeah, one thing that stands out to me is that because there have been so many officiating mistakes, there are also more poor reports after games in which one reporter is chosen to speak to the referee after the game. Half the time, the referee doesn't even talk. It's Walt Anderson, the NFL's VP of officiating, who takes the questions either by himself or in conjunction with the referee. Well, why can't the referees explain themselves? Why do they need Anderson's help? Don't they know the rules? And why aren't those interviews put on video and on the internet like all coach and player interviews? Why don't the referees hold post-game pressers? That would seem to force accountability to some degree. Uh, beyond that, I think the NFL needs to make officiating grades public. We now have metrics for just about anything in football. If you want to know which quarterback is the NFL's best in trips right in the fourth quarter against six or more pass rushers against cover one, I can pull that up for you in 30 seconds like I did this morning. It's Jared Goff, by the way. Uh, officials need to be made publicly accountable for their performances. The NFL grades officials after every game, or at least that's what they tell us, although playoff and Super Bowl assignments seem to indicate otherwise. Um, And there are two things Bill Belichick has talked about in the owners' meetings, in the league meetings for years. Making everything reviewable, not more reviews, but simply making everything reviewable, and using technology to take as much as possible out of the officials' hands. It is beyond stupid that the league is still basing whether a guy is inbounds or whether he made a first down based on the eye test. The Keelan Cole touchdown, uh, there was a guy for the Las Vegas Review Journal who put up a picture last night and indicated in on Twitter and indicated in the tweet, well, this proves he was in bounds. I'm like, no, it doesn't, because the the front trim of Keelan Cole's shoe is black. So is the end zone because it's a Raiders game, and you can see the chalk flying up, which I also put in my piece this morning. It, it, John McEnroe used to say when he was arguing with tennis officials, chalk flew up. Well, chalk flew up in this case. Um, you know, there's tracking technology to an – if you've ever watched the Amazon Prime telecast where they've got right. all the routes, all the players, like, in real time, there's tracking technology to an extreme degree. Let's use that to make officiating more accurate and for the NFL to be less dependent on the officials. I, You know, beyond the whole – we don't want judgment calls to be reviewable because it would, you know – cause fans to question the integrity. Well, I think that ship has sailed, guys. So there's a lot that needs to be done. Sadly, I think, you know, Roger Goodell is, you know, snapping necks and cashing checks. And I don't think the NFL cares. I honestly don't. 
Yeah, I mean, it's funny. We were just, my family and I, we were laughing about this uh, yesterday or Saturday. We were talking about the fact that it's 2022 and we have all of this technology available to us and we're still letting a side judge who's 30 yards away from the play spot the ball with his foot. You know, when you think about everything that rides on all of these calls, you talk about how many close games we've had this season and, and how one spot or one, you know, missed call here and there, it's literally a game of inches and we've seen it multiple times, but the fact that so much of that weight hangs on whether or not that side judge has like a, a, a size nine wide or a size nine regular uh, when he spots the ball with his foot from 30 yards away. The fact that that's all riding on that is just ridiculous at this point. We could have chips in the ball. We could have so many different ways of, of doing this that makes it more exact, that even saves time, right? And saves effort. And and we don't have to have as many reviews because if it crosses, we know because something happened. Like we, we, we would just have ways of doing that. That, that make games shorter and make things more precise and more correct more often. I feel like everything being reviewable is an easy starting point, right? That, that should be a no brainer and having some kind of way, like you said, to hold officials accountable when they do anything. But I mean, you talk about the Vikings game so many times they blow the whistle so early and yep. there's so many big plays on defense, especially those splash plays where you strip the ball and you scoop and score. How many times have we seen such a huge play that should be a highlight called back because somebody was trigger happy with the whistle. Like there's just so many ways in which the the way this game is officiated, it, it's so unacceptable and to do it at the highest level. And like you said, to expect players to, to stand up, look at Jacoby Myers yesterday and the way he stood in front of mm-hmm. the media and handled that situation. And, and the way these players are yeah, expected to be professional after making mistakes and, and talking to the media, but then, but the officials never have to do that. I, I think that's, I, I, I don't like it. I mentioned Jacoby Myers earlier. That's where we're going to go next. Yeah. That lateral attempt, if you want to call it that, to Mac Jones, intercepted. If you want to call it an interception, it was a backwards pass. Chandler Jones grabs that, runs 48 yards for a touchdown after putting Mac Jones into the turf, uh, maybe through to the other side, I think, with the way he stiff-armed him at the beginning of that where, like Everyone else was moving after that, and the number 10 just stood there. Poor little dot. That dot will never recover. It never will. It never will. I mean, it, it. I don't think it's hyperbole to call that maybe the worst play we've ever seen, the dumbest play, whatever you want to call it, in the history of football. That's how bad it was. It's certainly in the running, as all the Patriots had to do in that moment was run the clock out and they go to overtime, right? It's not like they were losing the game and just trying for a miracle. But other than this particular instance of the situational brain cramp, if you will, uh, what is the dumbest play that you've ever seen at any level of football outside of this one? I have, I have a feeling I know which one it is because I was there. Um, <laughs> certain skinny slant thrown by Russell Wilson to Ricardo Lockett in Super Bowl Forty Nine. The Patriots had subbed from base to nickel before that play. They had practiced it on defense during the week. They knew it was coming. And this is back when the Patriots had more than a handful of good assistant coaches, so they had this unlock. The Seahawks had no receivers on the field over six feet tall in a red zone situation, despite the fact that Chris Matthews, who was 6'3", was beating the Patriots to death uh, most of the game. It might be, given the long-term ramifications of that interception, what happened to the team and, you know, the players in Pete Carroll might be the most meaningful play in NFL history in a profoundly negative sense. Uh, that said, this play on Sunday was pretty damn dumb. It was, it was right up there. Yeah. I feel like Richard Sherman's reaction to that play was ever, was all of us, everybody like that. You were talking about Mac Jones's little dot, not ever recovering. I don't know if Sherm or the Seahawks have still ever recovered from that. Moment. Well, the thing about that play is I was in the third level in the press box 
uh, in the stadium, which is will host this Super Bowl as well. And Jermaine Curse had just made the most unbelievable catch in Super Bowl history, which nobody remembers. And yep. it, like the ball went up in the air and he caught it on the ground. And I'm watching it on the jumbo trying to make sure it was a catch. And my eyes come down and I'm like, why is Marshawn Lynch flaring? Oh, my God. Why is he flaring out? Oh, my God. And then all of a sudden, chaos. That's You what and everyone else was wondering. <laughs> We're wondering the same thing. I mean, I, I think that's the easy answer. I don't, I don't know if I can beat that. Um, on a personal note, I think the one that comes to mind is I remember in 1997, the Bucks finally made the playoffs for, I'm pretty sure, the first time in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1997 at the time, they had a home wild card game against the Detroit Lions. They were up 20-10, to 10 and the Lions had the ball, and the clock was running down. They obviously weren't going to get back into the game. They needed two scores. But <laughs> the clock was running down, and Scott Mitchell tried to spike the ball to stop the clock, but it was fourth down. Uh, so he he spiked the ball and ended that game for uh, the Lions. So that one that one comes to mind. And then if if you if you grew up like me, you're watching all those VHS tapes of old NFL films, right? The like Sun Super Sunday and yep. all the chronicles sure. of all the great plays. Jim Marshall's wrong way safety thought he thought it was a touchdown, or you know just the iconic image of him in that in those old vibrant colors, just running the wrong way in this Vikings uniform, and the announcer is just screaming at the top of his lungs that he thinks he scored a touchdown, he scored a safety, and that that one will always live on, but I, I think because of the weight of that moment, like you said, that what happened in that Super Bowl, that that will probably live on as the worst. Oh, Jim Marshall played like 280 straight games, played for 20 years, one of the greatest defensive ends. Yeah, exactly. I'm convinced that has kept him out of the Hall of Fame. So that's a pretty decent impact right there. That's criminal, by the way. Can we just it put is. that out? Like that's it ridiculous. It is. But that's a whole different podcast or video. Or it, it really is. It really is. We're gonna um, do that later. Yeah, yeah. Let's do uh, let's do NFC NFC East. Let's talk quarterbacks. I mean, everybody from Micah Parsons of the Dallas Cowboys, Chris Sims at NBC Sports, they've decided to jump on this narrative, right? That Eagles quarterback Jalen Hurts is a system quarterback. So before we even get to that, let's admit the truth that every quarterback is a system quarterback. I'd say every player is a system player because I hear the same garbage about Rondé Barber and the Bucks Tampa two, and that's the only reason he was successful. I don't want to hear any of that. Uh, every player plays within the system and. Great players can be all over in every system. So every player is a system player. Every quarterback is a system player. plays on a country cover, too, than it is, like, you know, bare fronts and switch coverages. That's ridiculous. Anyway. I just don't even get me started. You want to talk about another podcast? I could go for an hour on that. Um, But listen, I mean, what Parsons and Sims mean here is that Hertz is overly reliant on the Eagles' offenses. Uh, the Eagles offense, rather, the, the scheme, the talent around him, and that, therefore, he's easily replaceable, right? Where do you stand on that notion? I feel like it's probably not far from where I am. Uh, I'm about halfway through a tape piece on this exact subject, so uh, there's there's a lot of refutation coming. Uh, the thing that is so wrong about Hurts being portrayed as a system quarterback is that the Eagles have created their entire offensive system specifically for his skill set. It's as if you were to call Lamar Jackson a system quarterback after the Ravens completely overhauled their entire offense for him. Hurts is not only, he's completed 67.3 of his passes for 8.2 yards per attempt, 20 touchdowns, five, 22 touchdowns. Five interceptions. He's also run 158 times for 747 yards and 13 touchdowns. Uh, Justin Fields yesterday went over 1,000 rushing yards. We have a chance, and only three quarterbacks have done it, Fields, Lamar, and Michael Vick. We have a chance for two quarterbacks to do it this year, which tells us how the quarterback landscape is changing, by the way. Yeah, uh, better. Yeah. Hurts, and here, here comes Anthony Richardson, by the way. Hello. Yeah. 
Uh, he is not a system quarterback. He is the system. Sims, who I know and respect, said that with the offensive line receivers and coaches that the Eagles have, Gardner Minshew could do not the same stuff, but pretty much as well uh, as Hertz is doing. And I, you, Luke, you know this. I am the president and founder of the Gardner Minshew fan club, seriously. And even I'm calling malarkey on that. Uh, yes, Hertz is in an ideal situation, but he is also making the absolute most of his ideal situation. And that's what great quarterbacks do. So, yeah, it's like we stopped saying stupid things about Justin Herbert. So now we have to say stupid things about Jalen Hurts. It's like, who's next? I don't know. Hey, we got to have a hot take that doesn't make sense about somebody, right? We got to yes, do it. Did. It's funny. It feels like you would be like, hey, just, you know, just, just, uh, Jalen Hurts is your system, right? What's your system called? Uh, it's called the Jalen Hurts system. Pretty <laughs> much. Like, like you said, he is the system, and you don't. none of that works without a rare talent, a dynamic playmaker like you have in him at that position. Again, it's just it's one of many comical narratives, but it is. It's hilarious to me when you consider, especially the fact that the, the previous narrative was, that the Eagles couldn't do anything because they didn't have enough weapons and Jalen Hurts couldn't transcend that and he couldn't make everybody better around him. So then they got better weapons and now there are too many weapons. And so it's not his fault at all that they're doing any good. Anything that he does well is because of everybody else that they added. I, I don't, again, I could go all day on on how certain quarterbacks are, are treated and marginalized based on their skill sets instead of propped up because of what they bring to the table that's different uh, and and dynamic about that the skill set that they bring to the table like the guys you mentioned Lamar Jackson and Justin Fields we got Anthony Richardson coming up as well so many of these quarterbacks in this next wave of talent are going to be able to transform offenses and allow them to do things they've never been able to do before but unfortunately I think we're going to have to continue to keep fighting these narratives that when it does happen it's about everyone other than the, the guy who's the engine for the offense and the guy who's making it run I think that's true here with Hurts and it's, you know, with Herbert, his offensive line is really bad. He doesn't really have great receivers. So then we just have to say he's a social media quarterback. The other thing about Hurts, and he mentioned this back in January, through his time uh, at Oklahoma and Alabama and through the Eagles, this is the first season in which he's had the same play caller two years in a row. Yeah. That matters. That matters. So, yeah, I don't want not only that, Doug, he was the same guy at all those places. He won at Alabama and was the same guy. He went to Oklahoma and did the exact same thing and was the exact same guy. None of this should surprise anyone, and I don't understand it. Well, when we get into Anthony Richardson uh, run pre-draft time, we'll, we'll talk more about the whys, and I think we both know where we're going there. Everybody go to Touchdown Wire, read Doug's piece on Anthony Richardson, and thrive. It is a great piece, and you will learn a lot, as you usually will when you uh, read Doug's pieces. But let's finish off, Doug. We spoke last week, obviously, about how hard it is to take the Vikings seriously, despite their 10-3 <laughs> and three record, right? The negative point differential, their historically bad defense, ridiculous luck, 10-0 and 0 in one-score games, right? Completely different from the, the last few years in those situations. Yep. The, the last one-score game came on uh, Saturday, right? They engineered the greatest comeback they did in NFL history, 39-36 in overtime. Is there anything about this win that makes you believe more in the Vikings now at 11-3, and or are we still looking at the same team? Yeah, I think they did that just to spite us. Um, I'm still not sure. Uh, you look at the first half of that game. The Vikings looked a lot like the Vikings we were talking about last week. Actually, they looked a lot worse. <laughs> they allowed 208 yards in the first half and gained 82. Their first half possession ended thusly. Block punt, fumble, downs, downs, punt, interception, punt, end of half. The defense was terrible as usual. 
it clamped up a little bit in the second half. The offense was way off. The special teams were atrocious. Yes, they turned it all around in the second half and overtime, but they did so against a Colts team that was busy throwing up all over itself all of a sudden as, you know, it's like the curse traveled from one team to another in the second half. So, I mean, did I see something different? Not really. Um, Now, there is an intangible element of such a comeback that could carry over. When you do the impossible and you suddenly believe that everything is possible – well, maybe it is. And it was an amazing game, and kudos to the Vikings for that historic comeback. I'm not I'm just not entirely on the bandwagon yet. But beyond beyond the fact that maybe this propels them into believing they're more than they actually are, which we've seen that happen before. Yeah, that that's really all I was gonna say is that I do think there might be some magic, some energy about this team because of that belief, right? And, and that comeback is its own thing. But when you when you string all those wins together, when you go 10-0 and 0 in one-score games and you just consistently find ways to to end up on the right side of that, it does kind of make you feel invincible to a certain degree. That In a good way, though, like no matter how far you get down and how much time is left on the clock, that you're always going to have a chance until it hits zero, right? And I, I don't think it makes any of those shortcomings disappear and again, they won't get to play against an interim head coach with no previous head coaching experience every week in terms of making halftime adjustments. But I mean, these kind of things can galvanize a locker room, right? They can make everybody in there believe that they can overcome anything. And I think on paper, obviously, there's a huge gap still between the Eagles and the rest of everybody. And that includes the Vikings. I, I, even as the two seed, I wouldn't put them in that range. But I mean, this this game proved, right, that they can never be counted out. They were down 33 to nothing at halftime and still found a way there's got to be some value to something like that in that locker room. And I think obviously we'll see whether or not that means anything in the postseason. but these are the types of things that we see from those special teams that make those, those really wild runs in the playoffs that we've seen so many times before. It wouldn't surprise me if the Vikings end up being that team because the evidence has been there all year. Unless it makes them think, Hey, we've got this Kirk Cousins saying after the game, basic people don't do what we just did. And I'm like, Kirk, stop. Don't do it. Don't do that. Kirk. Stop. Yeah, we'll see. Thanks. Well, Kirk Cousins shouldn't do that, but what you should do is keep coming back every week. Join us on Four Down Territory. We have a blast uh, presenting the show to you guys. We hope you guys enjoy uh, watching it as much as we like having these conversations. Doug, thanks so much for joining me again. Once again, I'm Luke Easterling, Doug Farrar, Touchdown Wire, Draft Wire, Bucks Wire. Thanks so much for reading our work at the USA Today Sports Media Group, and uh, we'll see you next week. And probably Ref Wire by next week, and happy holidays, everyone. Yeah, yeah, let's do that, Ref Wire. See you then.